God, I pray for Steve that you'd give him your word. And Job, you said, you said that is not days that speak wisdom, but is the, your spirit in a man. And God, I just pray that it'll be your, your words and Mr. Steve that are coming out and that we'll be ready and open to your will. God, just please align our hearts with you. Please align our hearts with you. Let us seek your ways. Amen. Amen. That was the prayer of the Spirit. <clears throat> Joel has already read from Acts 2, verses 1 through, I think he went through 21, which was what I had in my notes to start with. Will we be referring back to that? But if you want to get your Bibles open to 2. A lot of my message today will come from the Old Testament and other passages. But uh, we'll start with some things. We're actually going to start, if you want to open your Bibles, uh, the first passage of Mona Reed is in Luke 24. So you might want to go there. Luke wrote two books in the Bible. Anybody didn't know that? Anybody did know that? He wrote a gospel. He wrote an account of Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection and ascension. And then he wrote an account, as Bill said last week, of the works of the, you could call it the works of the Holy Spirit. It's called the Acts of the Apostles and it's Greek title. But it could be easily the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And we hear about the birth of the church and the development and the spread of the gospel across the Mediterranean area. And it's a powerful book. It's an important book because it's showing us in its seminal, its seed-like form, what the church should be doing and experiencing and a lot of what it should be like. So I'm going to look back to the end of Luke for... You remember after the, re in the second resurrection appearance, there were two guys walking down from Jerusalem. They were taking about a seven-mile walk out to the village of Emmaus. And they're talking, they're in grief, they're disciples of the Lord. And they're grieved that he's died. They've heard rumors from, or what they almost are treating like rumors. They've heard stories from the women that went to the tomb and found it empty. Uh, but they're just perplexed. They're confused. And all of a sudden, another traveler shows up upon, um, with them and walks with them and begins to open the scriptures to them. Said he opened up the law and the prophets, all the things that were about him. And then he went with them into the home. And as he blessed the bread, which would not have been probably usual, usually that'd be the host, Cleopas in this case. But he blessed the bread, he gave thanks over the bread and broke it. All of a sudden they realized who they were seeing and he was gone. <laughs> Pretty dramatic. Well, they made a quick seven mile trip back to Jerusalem to where the apostles were up in a room together. And they said, uh, we seen him, he showed up. And they're all perplexed, the, the people there, and try and put this together. And they're in a locked room and all of a sudden Jesus is there with them. Uh, and yet, he gives them evidence of his, 
This tells us something about what it's going to be like in the age to come, I think. It's his resurrected body. It's a body that had flesh and bone, and yet it's a body that wasn't stopped by walls or anything different. And so he showed him the nail holes, and he ate some food. And then it says, verse 44, Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, so it is written that the Christ would rise, suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Luke then gives a short abbreviated version of the ascension and then picks up the story with the ascension, the, day, the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension and the ascension itself in the first part of Acts. So when he opens Acts, listen to these words. <clears throat> the first account I composed, Theophilus, God lover, friend of God, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things to come regarding the kingdom of God. Notice two things that these verses said that Jesus did with the apostles during this 40 days. He appeared to more than the apostles and he appeared more than five than 120. Paul said one occasion in Galilee, 500 brothers saw him. Uh, this was not done in a corner, even though it wasn't done public. Over 500 in one gathering saw him in Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. But he did two things, Luke says. He gave orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Just this morning, it grabbed my attention that it was by the Holy Spirit because this is a message about the Holy Spirit. That's amazing to me, and I won't preach on it. I don't even comprehend fully. But the resurrected Lord was still acting in conjunction with the Holy Spirit in giving directions to the apostles. I don't know what that means about his relationship with the Holy Spirit, but I know what it means for us. If he was not going to instruct those that were going to be giving, he was going to use to give birth to his church, if, if he didn't do that outside the power of the Holy Spirit, how do we think that we're going to live and serve God apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives? That's all I want to say about that. Second thing I want to say was that he talked to them, it says, about the things concerning the kingdom. No details are given, but we can 
pretty much bet on the fact, if you want to bet, that what he was doing was continuing to open up the scriptures about what God was planning and what God wanted to do. He was opening up the kingdom because that's what Jesus came to inaugurate. He became a man so that he could be anointed by the Holy Spirit. He, God, could become a man and that God with man would reign over the earth once again. Not only the earth, in in Matthew 28, he said that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But still, he was operating by the Holy Spirit and he was talking to them as to what God was going to do because of his purposes, which in a veiled way, you couldn't understand them until after the resurrection, after the scriptures were open, but they were already set out in the scriptures before. We do know one thing Jesus did. Read it last week. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father has promised. There's that word that he used back in 24. The promise of the Father. Which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, the question that we have this morning on the table, what is the promise of the Father? Well, in a general sense, it's obviously the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit on God's people. But it's, what is the promise of the Father in its specificity as it was revealed in the Scriptures and unveiled and comes to fulfillment in the church then and should be being fulfilled in us today. Before I go on to that, I want to pause and go back to Acts 2. Joel read this this morning. After the Holy Spirit was poured out powerfully, and dramatically on the 120 gathered in one accord in that room, Peter told the crowd, which quickly came together to find out what all the noise was about, he told them what was going on by quoting the promise the Father had made through the prophet Joel in the Scriptures in the Old Testament. Joel said, it will come about after this that I'll pour out my spirit on mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, your young men will see visions and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit on those days. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh or all mankind. I pause to point out there's a difference in what Joel said, what I just read and what Peter quoted. Just few words. It will come about after this, Joel said, but Peter said, this is that which the prophet Joel stated, it shall be in the last days. That's a significant change from after this to the last days. But that would have been loaded terminology in Jesus' day because not only what he told the apostles, but there 
there were Jews that weren't. But a lot of the Jews that were expecting Messiah, although Jesus didn't come the way they expect him, we can tell this in writings from that time, a lot of the Jews who were expecting Messiah to come were expecting that to be the initiation of the last days, the Messianic kingdom, when God's Messiah would reign. And Peter is saying, this is that. This is what you've been looking for. And again, again, when he ends up the sermon, which we didn't read today, but I'm going to read these verses. Chapter 2 of Acts, verses 32 to 36. It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, since he has been exalted at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. Holy Spirit didn't come in some quiet, silent, invisible. That day, he showed up and it could be seen and heard. For it's not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, that is, Christ, Lord and King, this Jesus whom you crucified. The first act of the king on the throne, sitting at the right hand of God, is to use the authority the Father gave him to pour out the Holy Spirit whom the Father had promised. When the crowd heard the declaration that God had made Jesus king, and that as king, Jesus had been authorized to pour out the promised Holy Spirit. Remember what their response was? In Acts 2, 38. What do we do? That wasn't, that wasn't a, just a question. That was desperation because in their sermon, in that sermon earlier on, Peter had said, this Jesus who was attested by God by signs and wonders you turned over to godless men to be killed. You had the king killed. But God didn't settle for that. God raised him from death just like David promised he would. Through David, God had promised he would. How would you feel if you had been part of the crowd that stood there before Pilate yelling, Crucify him! Give us Barabbas! And Peter preached this sermon, and you were witnessing this thing. Apparently, they're still seeing the fire on the head, and they're see, hearing these people that are uneducated in languages, mostly Galileans, praising God in... They don't know what they're saying, but the crowd is hearing them in at least 17 different languages. And then Peter says, this is that that the prophet Joel said, and it's happening. God sent the Messiah. This is the last day, and you had him killed. Brothers, what do we do?
Thank God it didn't stop there. Peter went on and said, repent. There's an answer. Turn around. Change your way of thinking. Change your way of living. Turn around. Turn from darkness to light. Turn from Satan to God. Repent. Turn around. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the King will forgive you for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, this promise made to the Father, is not just for us, 120. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call. How many have been called by the Lord? How many have been drawn by the Lord and you want to know, you've come to want to know Jesus? That means the promise is for us. Not just them, it's for all mankind, this promise of spirit. Now, we could focus on Joel, but I want to, hopefully I can do this fairly briefly, knock on wood. Now, I better trust in the Holy Spirit. Joel's prophecy was not the only prophecy. I want to, if I can, I want to read at least four more passages and then talk about their fulfillment in the New Testament. This is an important promise. God, all through the Old Testament, many times in many ways, not only prophesied the coming Messiah, but He said, I got the Spirit for you. So in Isaiah 44, verses 3 to 4, this is what it says. And I'm going to use instead of capital L, capital O, capital R, D, capital D, I'm going to use... The name of the Lord, which is what he gave them. Yahweh will pour water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. And I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. How many know that could realize in reading this? that the dry ground is not the fields of Israel. The dry ground is the soil of our hearts and our children's hearts and our descendants' hearts that God will pour out His Spirit on and make them rise up. Brought to mind as I was thinking about this, Jesus' own words. In John chapter 4, to the woman at the well in Samaria, everyone who drinks of this water, in other words, well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never be thirsty. That's the water that Isaiah is talking about, the water of the Spirit. But the water I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. And then again, in John chapter 7, when Jesus went to the feast in Jerusalem, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Then John adds his comment. This he said in reference to the Spirit whom those who believed were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is looking ahead to this 
Pentecostal outpouring that's not just for the day of Pentecost, but to go, is go on, go on down through history to his people. Think about it. Don't go to sleep on me. Think about it. God's promise is for the thirsty. I'll pour out my spirit on the thirsty. On those who recognize their need for life from beyond themselves. For help. On the dry, arid soil. Remember the parable of the soils? And the Son of Man. On that dry ground, God promises to pour out His own life, His own Spirit, and cause it to be fruitful. Oh, man. Got to go on. Hope you wrote that down. Isaiah 44, 3-4, and chew on it. God! We need you, but make us thirsty until we're desperate for a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. We need that kind of refilling that they had in Acts 4. If they needed a few weeks later, how much us in these days? God help us. I almost feel like I'm preaching this morning. I don't mean to blow your ears out, but... This is important stuff. This is God's Word. Also through the prophet Isaiah, God restated His promise. In chapter 59, verses 20 and 21, a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from wrongdoing. Who is the Redeemer that came to to Jerusalem and the people of God and to those who would repent and turn from their wrongdoing. Who was that Redeemer? Who is that Redeemer? A little louder than that, please. Jesus. Jesus. The promise has been fulfilled. And then he goes on, As for me, this is my covenant with them, with those who turn from their wrongdoing, those who hear the good news and who turn to Jesus. This is my covenant, says Yahweh. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. What did God do on the day of Pentecost? What drew the crowd besides the noisy wind? He put words in their mouth. They they spoke, but the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak. The Holy Spirit gave them utterance. He put words in their mouth. And every account that goes on in Acts tells us about the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit, filling the mouth with words. Now in both these promises, who's the promise for? Speaking back in Isaiah's day, it was for the people of Israel. But this is God's word to us just as much now as then. Who's it for? It's for our children and our children's children. Man, we need to take hold of the horns of the altar. 
and not let go until God's Spirit is poured out afresh and the Spirit of God overwhelms our children and brings life to thirsty, arid ground. These are great promises. And it has happened, and I say has happened because has is a present participle, which means it has started happening and it's still happening. God's still pouring out His Spirit where there's thirsty ground. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all with one accord, which is literally what it says. And suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the house where they were sitting and tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves and a tongue rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak. And this was so noisy wherever they were, maybe in a temple courtroom or an upper room, who knows. But when the wind came... And the disciples started praising God for his mighty deeds in languages that they didn't even know. Thousands gathered. (laughs) This is no quiet event. I'm reminded of Ern Baxter telling the story of how after being burnt by some experience with more or less Pentecostal charismatic people, he was pastoring a large evangelical church, the largest evangelical church in Canada, and uh, trying to keep things controlled. Don't want the outbreak. And his wife said, you know, honey, I've been reading the book of Revelation. We got a problem because that's a noisy place they're talking about there. It was noisy when the Spirit of God came. He doesn't always come in mild manner. He can come in any way he wants to come. But it drew a crowd. And they heard them in their languages, as Joel already said. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty deeds of God. Now, there's more. In Ezekiel chapter 36... God promised to give his people a new heart, a new spirit, and to put his spirit within him. He wrote wrote chapter 36, verses 24 to 27 in Ezekiel. This is the promise of the Father we're reading about. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the lands. There's a little preview of that right here, wasn't it? On the day of Pentecost with these people from all these nations gathered. And I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes. There's a lot we could say about that of how that's fulfilled in the New Testament. That last part about when the Spirit comes on you, it'll bring it about that you walk in my statutes. I'm reminded that it's by the Spirit of God, that the law of God is written on our hearts. So rather than being 
condemned and told what to do from outside, God writes it in the new heart that He gives us that we want to do the will of God. Just like it said of Jesus in the psalm, Lo, I've come to do your will. If we will surrender to the new man and the life of the Spirit, if we will surrender to God, it'll be our desire to do the will of God. And then uh, if we fall and when we fall from time to time, it'll be the cry of our heart to get back on track because it's written in our hearts to do. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. The writer of the Hebrews also talked about this law being written in our hearts. He quoted from Jeremiah 32, verses 33 and 34. I'm just reading from the one in Hebrews 10. He quotes a whole longer passage in Hebrews 8, including this. This is what God said. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their mind and then their sins and lawless deeds I will no longer remember. I will write my laws upon their hearts, write them on their hearts, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will no longer remember. How many are glad God knows how to forget? It's probably good for us to remember the pit from which we were dug. But I'll tell you, it's good news that God's not holding a record. When we turn to Him and the Spirit of God comes and changes our hearts, transforms our hearts, whether that's the first time or as we go on and we have to turn to Him again, as it talks about in 1 John, He continually cleanses us from all sin and He puts our sins away as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered. When we stand before God at the throne, if we are in Christ and He opens the books to judge the people out of the books about the deeds that they had done in the body, our record is going to be clean except for what we did in the Holy Spirit if we walk with Jesus. The very next chapter. And I won't take time to read the whole thing, but it's the familiar passage about the valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel was told to prophesy to the wind, the breath to come. In Hebrew and in Greek, key words for spirit can also be wind or breath. When you read this, you're talking not to the wind like that blew through before the rain yesterday. You're talking to the wind of God. You're talking about the Spirit of God. You're talking about the breath of God. You're talking about the one that God promised to pour out. And so he says, you, you, you prophesy the winds. And I'll just go to the last part. Son of man, these bones are the entire house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. I'll pause right there. According to the New Covenant, according to the New Testament, if we are in Christ, we are part of Abraham's family, part of the house of Israel. 
This promise isn't just for back then. It's for now. Have you ever been in a season where it seemed like your bones were dried up? Spiritually speaking. Have you ever been in a season when hope was hard to get hold of? Felt like it was gone? You ever been in a time when it feels like you can't get hold of God? You're completely cut off? God said there'd be times like that. So then he says, the prophet prophesy and say to them, this is what Yahweh says. Behold, I'm going to open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I'll bring you into the land of Israel. And then you'll know I'm Yahweh when I've opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people, and I'll put my spirit within you. And I've spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. This is the promise of the Father. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. Can't help but think about what our state is outside of Christ. Paul said, you were dead in your offenses and sins, which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in His mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, has made us alive together with Christ. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Breathing into us life. It's a picture of creation. Way back then when God formed a man from the dust, He formed the body and He breathed into His, own, into his nostrils His own breath. And the man became a living person. Apart from Christ, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, apart from God's breath, we are dead. We're zombies. Flesh walking around without true life. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone's born of water and the Spirit. This week, Jubilee was born of water. She came out of the waters of her mother's womb. That's not enough. She needs to be made alive in the Spirit, and so do all of us. Thus we're born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who takes what Jesus has done on the cross and what God has provided and makes it real and makes us alive in Christ. Paul wrote in Titus, God our Savior revealed His kindness and love. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Wow. New life. And again... Paul wrote in Romans, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, the Old Testament law could not do, weak as it was because of flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law could be fulfilled on us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
How many know that's not a one-time deal? JT and I have been doing some Bible study. We've been studying about the Spirit. I love the fact, it's important the fact, I might as well love it, that Paul talks about, not only about being born of the Spirit, but walking in the Spirit. No child ever learned how to walk in the flesh, walk as a human being, without plenty of falls. But the Holy Spirit, who's come to us because Jesus has poured Him out and He's made us alive, He'll teach us how to walk if we'll commune with God and depend on the Holy Spirit. Without God's Holy Spirit at work in us and upon us, we are dead. Say it with me. Without God's Spirit, we are dead. Though we are alive physically, we're dead to God in the eternal realm of the Spirit in which we were created to live. I say it again. I, think, I don't think it's coincidental <clears throat> that in this world, when Christ has been denied by so many, even the realm of the Spirit has been Denied by so many. There's a fascination with zombies. I'm not fascinated by them. But people are so hungry for some kind of thing beyond what we can know and see with our eyes that they're fascinated by dead things that move like living things. I want to say to you, I don't want to be a zombie. I want to be animated by the Spirit of God and be alive. And I'm not looking to zombies either. I'm looking to the Spirit of the living God. God, come upon us. I'm going to close. May those of us who know we've received the Spirit, like the first disciples in Jerusalem did, cry out for boldness to stand faithfully. May God pour out His Spirit on us afresh as He did them. Lord, we thirst. Fill us for these days.